tuned into Paradigms, insights into relationships and you. Hosted by Toby Jenkins, a marriage and family therapist associate serving Central Kentucky. Each week, Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health, relationships, or self-improvement. The name of the show, Paradigms, comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client. An epiphany, sometimes accompanied by physical reaction, that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. Welcome to Paradigms, Insights into Relationships in You. Today's topic is about addiction. Now, as a therapist, I'm not an addiction specialist, but I do work with uh, couples and families recovering from addiction or in the middle of addiction. And so from my standpoint, one of the toughest things is helping couples get used to what I would call a new normal. Um, and it's really, I've seen it from everywhere, from where the partner and family is completely involved to where the uh, partner family are not involved and success or failure isn't dictated by that but it's definitely a, a, a tricky thing to work through as a family and once addiction is present really uh, the new normal is knowing that uh, you have to be very vigilant to um, to keep addiction from creeping back into the relationship and the family dynamic. So the typical things I see are really, or my approach is to help couples rebuild the trust and, and increase the communication. Because one of the things I typically see is that uh, when addiction is present, usually there's secrecy, dishonesty, and um, just an overall lack of communication, which as you know, in your daily lives, from time to time, that just happens. So being that Kentucky is pretty close to the bullseye, bullseye of the addiction um, epidemic, um, it's become clear to me that there aren't enough resources available, and plus we're still learning, on how, learning about how to treat addiction to help couples and families recover after addiction takes place. So today's guest is Alec Ellswick. He is the co-founder of Voices of Hope. The mission of Voices of Hope is to promote lifelong recovery from the chronic diseases of addiction. You can find Voices of Hope on the internet at voicesofhopelex.org, one word, and you can reach them by phone at 859-303-7671. So, Alex, I'm really appreciative of you joining us today, and um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in addiction work. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm born and raised in, in Lexington here in Central Kentucky, and um, I got a, a prescription to uh, opioids when I was 18 years old. I had elective surgery to have my wisdom teeth removed and got prescribed oxycodone, and I got addicted to it and, and went down a journey through addiction that I never expected I, I would go. Um, and I spent about five years uh, addicted. Uh, I made it as many people do, made the switch from, from prescription pain medication to heroin. And then I experienced kind of all the, the stuff, for lack of a better word, that comes with addiction. I experienced uh, jail and, and treatment centers and homelessness and um, 
and I'm fortunate to be in recovery today, five, almost five years in recovery today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's awesome. It's been a long journey, and, um, and that, that's kind of what led to doing the nonprofit work and the research at UK and, and all that. So, Alex, you mentioned a couple of things in there that I've also seen, um, which is the pathway into addiction. And so, uh, from my experience working with families and couples, there seems to be, and you might know, you probably know this better than I do, there seems to be an age divide of how people get into it. So, the younger people I've worked with uh, get into it from basically being adventurous, uh, trying out pills, and then getting caught in that cycle. But I've also interacted with some older uh, clients, and they enter it the same way you, you did. It starts with a, an injury of some kind, uh, being prescribed pain medication, and then not being able to get off of the pain medication. And I've, I've seen the same progression you talked about, from pain medication to heroin to cocaine to harder things. Um, and so is that, that's my, my, my view from uh, not really working a lot with it. Was that, is that pretty typical? Yeah, I think that's right. Part of what makes the opioid epidemic sort of unique as drug epidemics go is that there's a legitimate pathway into addiction through prescription pills that's been created. And if it's, it's a pretty complex intersection, kind of a perfect storm of things that came together to cause it. And if you're interested, there's a great book by Sam Keones called Dreamland that, that catalogs that. But um, it's, it's just made it such that many people who would never have gone to a street corner to buy a drug in their lives um, found themselves addicted to a substance that they started getting from their doctor. Okay. And so you, you made an inter interesting comment. I, I, would, I would guess that the general public has the view of people that, are, that go into addiction from this way, from this, from this pathway, is... Um, being out of control or making bad choices. Um, but um, my experience is it's not, you just described it, people do things that are completely out of character. Um, so um, how did you, uh, how did you, the Voices of Hope uh, or kind of confront that or address that? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that the research tells us about addiction that I think we neglect a lot is that addiction is not just a disease, but it's a chronic disease. So um, when you have a chronic disease like, let's say, heart disease, for instance, um, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to take medication to manage your blood pressure, and um, you're going to change your, your, your lifestyle, your diet, your exercise. You're going to do all these things even after you leave the hospital following a heart attack, let's say. So essentially what, what our organization does is advocate for us to, to regard addiction in the same way. Um, because under our existing model, we send people to treatment for 30 days or 90 days or whatever it is, and they get out and they relapse. And we go through this, these cycles of relapse and remission over and over again. And what we're missing is when people get out, um, they need kind of the new normal that you talked about. They kind of need resources to help them find their new normal. And so that's everything from mental health services to housing to, to repairing relationships, um, to, to things like diet and exercise, things that manage their disorder over the long term. Okay. So what you're really describing is a holistic path back from recovery. Um, I've also, um, I've also uh, learned a lot more about, um, you might have to correct me, is it Suboxone? Mm -hmm. And so um, as, a, as a method of managing um, 
impulses and addiction, and, 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 addiction mm-hmm. and it's a graduated way to to get you to be addiction free. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know? Do you know? Is that successful by itself, or like it, with any other drug? Um, how does it work in cooperation with other treatment uh, sure. approaches? So it's interesting that there's some controversy over what we would call medication-assisted treatment like Suboxone because the research, actually one of the leading Suboxone researchers is here at UK, Sharon Walsh and and Michelle Lofwall, but um, the research says pretty clearly that that Suboxone is the the gold standard for treating Mm -hmm. opioid addiction, Um, and it works most effectively when it's used in conjunction with psychotherapies. Yep, okay. Um, And essentially what it does is, is... this is, I guess, a complicated answer, but essentially it's an opioid agonist and a- antagonist. So it partially fills the same receptor site that, like, heroin or a pain medication would and okay. sort of blocks the receptor site. Okay. Okay, so, like, my experience with Suboxone in particular is I've worked with a client, and um, he's in that process now. And what he says is, I don't think about the same things I used to think about when I wasn't on Suboxone. And so... It becomes, um, to use an athletic analogy, it, it really becomes, the mental part becomes just as tough as the physical part. If you think of someone who, say, has, has torn an ACL, mm-hmm. you can be physically ready to run and compete again, but then mentally you always question, can I, can I do it? And so um, from what I've learned from this client, it's a multi-year process, and doctors usually stair-step you down. But there's some real, real fear of getting completely off and then not knowing what to do once you're off or once he's off. Yeah, it's it's actually, that's a great analogy. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's another drug that we use to treat opioid addiction. We also use it to treat alcohol addiction as well. It's called Vivitrol. It's naltrexone. And, and it basically, if you were to, let's say, take heroin while you were on naltrexone, you would only get about 5% of the effect. So it, wow. it's the same thing. It's not, it's not necessarily all physical. Part of it is also this psychological, um, gives you kind of an added sense of security. And I think that's a big part of where a therapist plays an important role mm-hmm. as a person's titrating off, weaning off of the suboxone is um, helping them adjust to develop, developing new coping mechanisms that fill that void. Yeah, that's, um, and with this client, that's what I see my work as being is um, within their family, helping them uh, develop uh, conflict resolution skills mm-hmm. and also um, uh, just enhancing their intimacy and honesty mm-hmm. so that within their relationship, he doesn't get triggered by his anger or frustration. And that, those are the things in his past that typically led him down the road of wanting to get high, right. essentially. Right. And so, um, so it's a well, it's a well coordinated effort. Um, that, like you were saying, it's important to, uh, to. It's a multifaceted, holistic look. Um, so, what are your thoughts on people who attempt to do this cold turkey? Yeah. So um, there is there is a phenomenon in in recovery called spontaneous remission, where people sort of one day wake up and say, I don't want to do this anymore, and they stop using. And that's typically for people who have addictions that are less severe. Um, I can tell you personally, I support anyone's path to recovery, whatever it looks like. I don't, I don't really um, prioritize one path over another. But having said that, 
the research tells us pretty clearly what works and what doesn't. Um, for instance, a lot of people use really confrontational approaches in treating addiction. There's, there's this idea that we can um, intervene on people and confront them and yell at them and tell them all the awful things they did, and it's going to make them want to stop. But unfortunately, that, that tends to make things worse. Mm. So we advocate for more compassionate approaches that acknowledge this person has a disease, they don't want it to be this way, and how can we work together uh, against the problem? Awesome. Well, we're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be back right after these messages with Alex Elsman. This segment of Paradigms, Insights into Relationships and You is sponsored by Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, walking beside you during life's challenges, providing therapy for couples, families, and individuals. Find us on the web at www.jenkinscft.com. In our first segment, we talked about, um, gave an overview of addiction recovery um, but at the beginning of our, that segment, Alex talked a little bit about himself being personally involved with, uh, with addiction, progressing from pain medication to heroin. So, um, Alex, um, in your recovery process, um, what would you say was the most helpful uh, thing that people around you did to help you uh, come out of addiction? Yeah, I, I tell people often that I'm really fortunate. So when I go and do like a speaking engagement, people come up afterwards and say really nice things, right? Like, we're proud of you because you're strong and you're brave. And those are nice things to say, and I know they mean well, but that's not true. I'm, I'm not in recovery because of me. Uh, I'm in recovery because I got what I needed, and a lot of that was from other people. Um, I, I come from a family who um, really stuck it out with me, even though I, I did them a lot of harm. And so they were willing to go to family therapy. It's actually oh, what, wow. what made me want to become a family therapist okay, in the good, first place. Good. Um, and I went to individual therapy to, to address some underlying anxiety. And um, I, people showed up for me and gave me second chances and third chances and fourth chances when um, it wasn't easy to do. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point that um, it's not an individual battle. It's, it's every, all hands on deck. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I can think from my own experience, uh, families have a frustration point, sure. and at some point, uh, they withdraw from the process and either excommunicate that loved one or whatever that limit is. And so, um, I've seen parents struggle with this um, with their 18-year-old teenage, you know, late teenage uh, children, mm-hmm. and it's really a there's really a no-win choice. Uh, when you've reached your limit. Uh, what was it about your network of, of family and friends that, um, why didn't they give up on you? Well, I'll tell you what they did that was so important and I think that made made it easier for them to cope with my addiction is they went and educated themselves and read every bit of literature they could get their hands on. Um, my, my grandfather was in the hospital and, and my grandmother read a book to him called When Helping Hurts about enabling. I mean, it truly, my whole family was engaged and they wow. wanted to understand what is it that he's struggling with. That's phenomenal. And it made such a difference. Um, and, and one of the things they, they had to tease out that I think is really complicated for families is we hear the buzzword enabling. Don't mm-hmm. enable, don't enable. 
But that's complicated because at the same time, we know that support, family support, can really help people in recovery. So, so take a step back. What, is, what do you mean by enabling? So enabling, essentially, as we would define it, is it's making it easier for your loved one to continue to use drugs and alcohol in their addiction. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times when, when families here don't enable, they think, I've got to cut them off from all support. I've got to, you use the word excommunicate, mm-hmm. kind of send them out on their own, which I, while I certainly understand why a family would be inclined to do that, um, the research tells us that, that people have better outcomes, they're more likely to recover when their families are supporting them. Sure. So it leaves us with this really important question of well, what's the difference? I was going to ask that because um, I, the things I've, I've seen mm-hmm. is um, they want to, families want to hang in there with you, mm-hmm. but then... We're going to lock up the jewelry. We're going to lock up all valuables. Mm-hmm. We're going to put some really tight controls in place. Um, you may or not, may or not have a key to the house, mm-hmm. all those kind of things. Um, so of those kind of mechanisms that families or mostly parents put in place, um, is there a rule book or some things you should definitely do? Or is it just kind of situational? Yeah, I think it. I think it is a little different for each family. For instance, I have two sisters, and um, one of my sisters was having trouble in school as I was dealing with my addiction because of just I think the the stress that it was putting mm-hmm. on the family. And yeah. so, you know, there it's it, addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen to one person in a vacuum. It's a, it's impacting everyone. And so, my parents saw it as their responsibility to protect my sisters from the impact of my addiction, which is complicated. That is really complicated. Because, I mean, you said the word complicated, mm-hmm. but um, it's almost like you're having to choose the well-being of mm. one child over another, um, and that's a really, really hard choice to make. Um, yeah. I used a lifeboat example with, uh, with a lot of families and couples. If you're in a lifeboat and have one person to save, who do you save? And... Um, that's kind of a lifeboat situation. Yeah, it is. And and my family was I mean, we made some mistakes, but I think they were they were learning as they went. Nobody's nobody's prepared to have a, a family member addicted, right? So it's a learning experience and I think over time one of the things they learned is that um, not only did they not cause my addiction, but they couldn't control it and they couldn't cure it. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be supportive but but they weren't going to be the ones to solve it. So their first priority was to protect themselves and protect their kids, uh, who they were responsible for. And then they set about finding ways of supporting without enabling. And and as a as a rule of thumb, one of the things that, that I tell families I work with now is you want to make it as hard as possible for your loved one to continue to use in their addiction and as easy as possible for them to recover. Wow. So That's it's a powerful point. It is. And it's it's it's, it makes sense when you say it that way. It's a lot more complex when you try to apply it in real-world mm-hmm. situations, right? Yeah. Um, can you, if your loved one's addicted, can they continue living in your home? Or can you buy them a meal? Or can you, I mean, some of those, I think, are questions that families have to decide for themselves. Yeah, you bring up uh, an important point. One of the things that I'm a big fan of is... Uh, helping families and couples this outside of working with addiction mm-hmm. but being clear on what their values are and what their principles are mm-hmm. and so what you really described there was your family had a principled approach mm-hmm. and they followed those principles in helping you recover and so 
Um, and, and why principles are so important, especially in family and couples work, is because it helps you get on the same page on the big things. And then small, small decisions become easier. Mm-hmm. And then you're all on the same page. Um, so that sounds like a very principled approach um, that they took. I I think it was, yeah. Yeah. So at the lowest of the low, Mm -hmm. what was it that that kept you from quitting? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a story about that, actually. Um, I ended up homeless in uh, a few different cities, but I was homeless in Dayton, Ohio. and, And I mean really homeless, sleeping under a bridge, holding a cardboard sign that said homeless and hungry and taking people's money and shooting heroin and, and really a stereotype of heroin addiction. And I called my dad from a payphone. I think it's the only time I've ever used a payphone in my wow. entire life. Called my dad from a payphone downtown Dayton and said, Dad, I need help. I'm addicted. And um, this was probably four or five years into my addiction. And he said, Alvin, he calls me Alvin. He said, <laughs> he said Alvin, I can't help you. And I hung up the phone. Oh, wow. And I... I I tell people that story with a number of disclaimers. One is I'm not suggesting that that's what any family member should do. I'm not prescribing that for anyone. And number two, that sounds so cold-blooded, but what people need to understand is that came in the context of five years of doing everything they could to help. And I think they realized at this point they were hurting more than they were helping. Okay. Um, And so this is a time when they felt like they needed to – to let me figure it out on my own um, and I spent another couple of days homeless in Dayton and then um, was really fortunate to there's a Salvation Army in Dayton which is essentially a homeless shelter mm-hmm. and I, I was fortunate to walk in the front door there and get an opportunity to turn it around wow as a father myself that is gut-wrenching to hear mm-hmm. um, and that's a really really difficult decision to make and I agree with you. That was a loving thing to do. And it sounds like they had reached that point based on their principles that they were wanting you to take more of an initiative in your recovery process. That's it. And honestly, in retrospect, if you talk to them now, I don't know that they would say that they did the right thing. We've had this conversation oh, many yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, and they, they agonize over it. You know, especially when we're talking about opioids, the risk of overdose mm-hmm. is always there. And so... My mom has said many times, you know, if you had, had, God forbid, overdosed and passed away, I don't know what we would have said about that decision. But yeah. it's, it's the, the point that they reached. And people should also know I, ha- I have and had a really good relationship with my father. He's, mm. he's one of the most important people in the world. It wasn't some awful, fractured, angry relationship. So I think it, it really put him in an awful position. To have to oh, do yeah. That. Extremely tough. Well, we're up against another break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about where Alex has come from that low point to where he is now. And also uh, make sure that we provide some information about where you can get support for uh, loved ones that are addicted, or even if you are addicted yourself. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This segment of Paradigms, Insights into Relationships and You, is sponsored by the Parker Relationship Center, working to better relationships for individuals, couples, and families. Find us on the web at www.relationshipcenterky.com. 
We're back with our guest, Alex Ellswick. Before the break, Alex was describing the low point of his recovery. Now we'll talk more about the path he took since that low point. So um, can you walk us through um, what that path from that phone call to where you are now has been like? Yeah, I, I wish that it was a straight line. Um, we, we tell people a lot of times recovery is not linear. Um, so I, I was at the Salvation Army. This was now my fifth treatment, inpatient treatment center, hmm. not to mention all the outpatient treatment centers. And um, i got to tell you that rehab is miserable. And it's, it's, I, it's something that I stress when I talk to families because I think one, one of the things people don't appreciate is how just psycholo- what psychological torture it is to be addicted. We talk a lot about all the, the harms associated with it, but people forget that it's so, so miserable to be addicted. And I really struggled with, with like suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. like really seriously considering taking my life and, and just some dark stuff for about two months. And things started to turn around, and, and a lot of it had to do with, um, I guess, a couple different things. I'm, I formed some relationships at the Salvation Army with some guys that really carried me through. Um, it's just that collective experience of going through something hard together, you know, mm-hmm. brought me through. And um, I started exercising really religiously in a way that <laughs> really, you know, some might say addictively, yep. um, but in a way that I think helped helped to repair my brain a little faster, helped to get some dopamine flowing again. And, um, and I spent six months at the Salvation Army and you know, we, we, we talk about people graduating from treatment, but mm-hmm. one of the things that, that we stress as an organization is you really don't gr- ever graduate. It's more like a commencement because you're really beginning the journey. Wow. Right? So yeah. um, you're, you're not cured of your disease. You're not all better. Um, it's really the beginning of finding, like you say, the new normal. And so um, I still had all these barriers. I had a criminal record. I had bad credit, I had lots of debt, so no one was going to give me a job or give me a place to live or um, give me transportation or whatever. So I I had people, like I said before, show up for me, mm-hmm. and someone gave me a job and, and gave me a place to live and helped me get a car and slowly but surely got back on my feet, and then I'm very, very fortunate that I was able to go back and finish my bachelor's and then get a master's at UK doing uh, marriage and family therapy and start a PhD and it's been wow it's been all you good said start a PhD so um, how far into the PhD are you so I'm in my the second year of three years halfway through hopefully fingers crossed uh-huh. fingers crossed I'll be yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's quite an amazing amazing journey from Dayton mm. to finishing your undergraduate degree mm. master's degree and now getting a PhD and then after your PhD, you want to go into addiction work. Absolutely. Now that that's just phenomenal, um, phenomenal. Um, and I commend you for all the hard work. Thank you. And um, I'm sure the people, your loved ones, are super proud of you from uh, from where you were to where you've been. Um, so uh, you mentioned um, alcohol addiction, <coughs> and I know from. From some of my experiences with alcohol addiction, it's it's a daily something you manage daily. So, mm-hmm. what are the kind of things that you do, or, or that you would recommend on a daily basis for people working through addiction? Yeah, I love that you use the word manage mm-hmm. because that's a lot of times the way we describe dealing with addiction. Uh, if you had 
if you had diabetes, you would manage your diabetes. You would check your blood, your blood sugar, you would take insulin and, and change your diet and your exercise and kind of act accordingly. And, and we really, it's nothing new. It's like we do with all other chronic diseases. We say you do the same with addiction. You have to manage. And so for me, um, that, that may look different for different people. For me, that looks like um, I'm a member of a 12-step program. Um, which provides me with, with mutual support, peer support that I think is helpful. Um, I work out every single day, and I think... And it shows. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a physical health thing, but for me, mm-hmm. I really think it's a, a mental health thing. It's a consistency, accountability thing. It's a touchstone in my day. It's important. Um, I went to uh, an intensive outpatient program after I left inpatient mm-hmm. that kind of helped helped me with the transition back in. Um, I saw a therapist and still still do from time to time to address uh, anxiety, and that's been immensely helpful for me. Super. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the things I do to address my anxiety help me manage my addiction. Uh, started meditating, um, which if you had said that to me three years ago, I would have scoffed. Uh, but it's it's been immensely helpful for me. You know, those uh-huh. things that therapists like to yep. say. Um, yeah, mindfulness, breathing, absolutely. Breathing, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's been helpful. Um, and and then getting involved with, um, with other people who've experienced addiction and having people on the phone I can call just to say, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to a dark place in my head and I just need to talk this out. You know, okay. It's been helpful. Very good. So it's a combination of some daily practices but mm-hmm. also a support network that's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned... Um, you know, I kind of I said it shows that you work out daily. Um, one of the I'd say common assumptions is that um, people who have addictive personalities, so to speak, mm-hmm. trade one addiction for another. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you see? Um, yeah, the the I guess there's mixed evidence on the notion of a addictive personality, but certainly I think many people who have had my experience are prone to. Uh, like habit Mm -hmm. and one of the things that that made me I had a therapist tell me early on and I thought this was brilliant he said you know every time you're in treatment you do really really well you stay sober number one Mm -hmm. and something's working there that's not working when you get back out and so he said we got to figure out how we can transplant what you're doing in treatment out into the real world and part of what was working in treatment was structure yeah Uh, it's an important point Mm -hmm. as it turns out um I didn't realize it, but I had really unstructured days, especially because when I got out, I didn't have a job, and I wasn't in school, so mm-hmm. I just had wide open days yeah. with a lot of time to spend in my own mind. That's my enemy, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's dangerous, right? <laughs> it is. It's a dangerous place to be. I tell yeah. people, you don't want to be up in my head. It's yeah. a scary, scary place. Yeah. Um, and so a big part of, that's a big part of what, what exercise and employment um, and, and school does for me is it, it structures my day in a way where I know where I'm going to be. I know where my downtimes are that are more likely to be, uh, you know, potential sticking points, and um, it, it kind of helps me move along. Okay, good. I mean, that's, um, yeah, de- what, there's a saying, uh, idleness is the, in, is the devil's workshop. Yeah, that's that, it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to give the uh, listening audience um, some resources, mm-hmm. either if you are the one that's, that's addicted, if you're a loved one. Um, the example you gave about your family and their support is, is amazing. 
and it's um, I don't know if that's typical. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of families will uh, will stick it out or, or dive in and, and get educated in terms of how to help help uh, their loved one get out of addiction. So, um, in most communities, what's available? What kind of uh, resources are available for those dealing with addiction? So I would commend anyone, a family member or otherwise, to use the the state's treatment locator. It's called findhelpnowky.org. It's findhelpnowky.org. And it's it uh, asks a few basic screening questions. Are you looking for inpatient or outpatient? Are you male or female? Uh, do you have insurance? If so, what kind? And, and then it'll populate for you a list of places. And then it'll tell you who has beds available and who has has spots available. It's, it's a good resource to simplify that process a little bit. So you bring up a good point, um, insurance. Mm-hmm. And so are these resources available, whether you have insurance or not, or how, do, how does that typically work? It can be a little bit, uh, some rehabs can really be cost prohibitive. And yep. so if you don't have insurance, it's, it's just not even going to be a possibility. We made a lot of strides in the Obama administration to expand, um, Medicaid to cover a lot of mental health services, including addiction, thankfully. Um, and and uh, so Medicaid will get people uh, more access than they realize, and so I encourage people to kind of check it out. Yeah. And you bring up, you know, you said that about insurance. Um, my, my view is limited from the people I've worked with, but um, the majority of them have had Medicaid. Yeah. And so I would imagine that a lot of people dealing with addiction – also are not are not financially able to go pay out of pocket for some of these uh, resources. So it's a com- it's a really complex, complicated uh, situation to be in. Um, how about some other resources out there? Sure. So um, I would also encourage families to go get help for themselves. I mean, you know this, I'm sure, as a family therapist. Yes. One of the things we hear oftentimes is like, well, my loved one has the problem. I don't have the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's like, yeah, but you're here because you're dealing with it. So the problem's affecting you. And, and so I always encourage families to go get help and get support. So as I mentioned earlier, part of that is learning more about addiction. And part of it also is uh, maybe becoming a part of a, a support group mm-hmm. like Al-Anon. Or um, there's another approach called CRAFT. And it's an acronym for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's kind of a different approach to helping loved ones get into treatment. So I'd encourage families to check that out. Um, And then one of the things we're working on at Voices of Hope is opening a community center here in Lexington. Wow. And it's going to be great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a big, we're super excited. And and it's basically, it's not a treatment center. It's not a place for, it's not a rehab, but it's for after treatment or after incarceration for people to come and get resources. So um, that may look like free yoga classes. That may look like help with budgeting or taking care of finances, getting a record expunged. But one of the things I'm most excited about is we're going to be running family groups. So it's support groups for families, um, and it's a place for families to kind of talk through solutions to their loved ones' uh, addictions. Doing that in a group setting can be really powerful Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times when families get in these kind of situations, they think no one else is going through this but me. But one of the most powerful things about doing this kind of work in a group is you realize we're not the only ones. Um, there are others dealing with it. And you also get a chance to learn from other people. And from my experience, um, in my background working with couples um, through various churches, I've done work with uh, cu- with 12 couples at a time. Yeah. 
And you, there's more uh, validity from other couples than from me standing in front of them. Right. And so, uh, <coughs> being, and also, after you get done with that experience, like you mentioned, having people you still reach out to, that creates uh, other families for families to contact and help encourage you. So, um, I like the group family approach a lot um, and group therapy approach a lot. Um, that's awesome. So, um, your nonprofit, uh, Voices of Hope, um, I want to stress nonprofit. How can people uh, contribute or donate or help support your vision and what you're trying to do with, with addiction recovery? So, there's two ways. Uh, the first would be to go online and donate at voicesofhopelex.org, and, and we certainly think we're good stewards of those dollars. Um, another way, if people don't want to or aren't able to support financially, is to donate their time or whatever their gifts or talents are. So, for instance, at our community center, a young lady has already said she wants to donate two hours of free yoga classes a week to people in recovery. So all the services are free. So it could be cooking classes. It could be parenting classes. It could be you know art classes. Anything that we think could, could contribute to someone's recovery, we want to hear from people and see how we can use them. That's awesome. So once again, that's voicesofhopelex.org, one word. And they can be reached at 859-303-7671. I'd like to thank Alex for educating us and sharing his story today. And uh, hopefully we've reached at least one person today. I think so. Thanks It'd for be having worth me. it for one person. Thank you. You've been listening to Paradigms, Insights into Relationships in You. We'll see you again next week. If you have a question or story to tell related to today's topic, email us at toby at paradigmradioshow.com. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. Join us again 